welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 19, Vinacoro. This terrible night was only the first of a series of disasters that the Nautilus was destined to encounter on her travels. Since we were now navigating through more frequent waters, we often saw hulls of ships in the last stages of decomposition, while deep down on the bed of the ocean we saw guns, cannonballs, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron objects rusting away in the water. Meanwhile, the Nautilus, in which we lived, in complete isolation, continued on her way. On the 11th day of December, we sighted the Tomotu Islands, which Organville had called the Dangerous Group, which extend 500 leagues from south east-southeast to west-northwest, between latitudes 13 degrees 30 minutes and 23 degrees 50 minutes south and longitudes 125 degrees 30 minutes and 151 30 minutes east, from the Dulce Island to the Lazareff Island. This archipelago covers an area of 370 square leagues and is formed by about 60 groups of islands, among which the Gambier Group, which is under the protectorate of France. These are all coral islands. The slow but continuous growth of these islands due to the work of polyps may someday link them together. At a later epoch, this new island will link up the neighboring archipelagos and a fifth continent will extend from New Zealand and New Caledonia all the way to the Marquesas Islands. One day, when I explained my theory to Captain Nemo, he replied with reserve, There is no need for new continents, but there is need for new men. The course of the Nautilus took her in the direction of the island of Clermont-Tonnerre, one of the strangest in the group, discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell of the Minerva. They gave us an opportunity to study the madreporal system that has created the islands in these waters. Madrepores, which one must be careful not to confuse with corals, have a tissue lined with calcareous or limestone crust. Variations in their structure led my famous teacher, Mr. Milne Edwards, to classify them in five sections. The tiny animalcules that secrete this polypary live by the millions inside their cells. It is their calcareous deposit that forms rocks, reefs, and islands, both large and small. Sometimes they may form a ring surrounding a lagoon or a small inland lake, which is connected with the sea through gaps in their structure. Elsewhere, they may form barrier reefs similar to those off the coast of New Caledonia and the various Pomotu islands. Sometimes, as a reunion and Mauritius, they create fringed reefs and high, straight walls near which the depth of the water is considerable. A few cables links off the coast of the island of Clermont-Tonnerre. I admired the gigantic work accomplished by these microscopic builders. These limestone walls are the special work of madrepores known as millipores, porites, astria, and mandria. These polyps flourish, especially in beds agitated by rough waters near the surface, and so they begin their work at the top and work down. Thus, these constructions gradually grow downward with the accumulation of their secretion. At least, that is the theory put forward by Mr. Darwin to explain the formation of atolls. In my opinion, this theory is more logical than the theory that the madrepore structures are superimposed on the summits of mountains or volcanoes, which then submerge a few feet below the surface. I could observe these curious walls very closely. The sounding we took showed them to be more than 900 feet deep, and the beams of our searchlight made the limestone scintillate 
When Conseil asked me how long it took to build these colossal barriers, he was astonished to hear that experts estimated the rate of growth at one-eighth of an inch per century, which means that building these walls took 192,000 years, my lad, which makes these days referred to in the Bible a good bit longer. Furthermore, the formation of coal, that is to say the mineralization of forests submerged by floods and the cooling of basalt rocks, took a much longer time. However, I must add that the days of the Bible represent epochs, and not an interval between sunrise to sunrise, for according to the Bible itself, the sun does not date from the first day of creation. When the Nautilus surfaced again, I could visualize the complete development of this island of Clermont-Tonnerre, which was low and covered with forests. Its mandrapural rocks had evidently been fertilized by whirlwinds and storms. One day, a seed, borne aloft and carried away by some hurricane from the neighboring land, fell on these calcareous deposits, with a decomposed refuse of fish and sea vegetation and formed a vegetable humus. Perhaps a coconut driven ashore by the waves was washed up on this new coast where it germinated. The tree, in growing, caught the water mists and a stream was born. Gradually, vegetation grew. Some animalcules, worms, and insects lived in a tree. Trunks on other islands were swept onto these shores by the wind. Turtles came here to lay their eggs. Birds nested in the young trees and in this way, animal life developed. Then, attracted by green vegetation and the fertility of the land, man made his appearance. This is how these islands came into being, through the immense achievement of microscopic animals. Toward evening, Clermont-Tonnerre faded away into the distance, and the Nautilus changed her course somewhat. After touching the Tropic of Capricorn in longitude 135 degrees, we sailed west-northwest, following the whole of the intertropical zone. Although the summer sun was consistently hot, we did not suffer at all from the heat, for at 15 or 20 fathoms depth, the temperature did not rise above 50 degrees to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. On the 15th of December, we left the charming archipelago of the Society Islands and graceful Tahiti, queen of the Pacific, to the east. In the morning, I saw a few miles to leeward the high summits of that island. Its waters supplied our kitchen with excellent fish, including mackerel, bonitos, albacores, and some varieties of sea serpents known as the moray eel. The Nautilus had traveled 8,000 miles. The log read 9,720 miles when we sailed through Tonga Islands, where the crews of the Argo and Port-au-Prince and the Duke of Portland perished in the archipelago of navigators, where Captain Langle, the friend of La Pierrus, was killed. Then, we sighted the archipelago of Viti, where savages massacred both the crew of the Union and Captain Bureau of Nantes, who commanded the amiable Josephine. This archipelago, which extends over a distance of a hundred leagues from north to south and ninety leagues from east to west is situated between latitude 6 degrees and 2 degrees south and between longitude 174 degrees and 179 west. It consists of a number of islands, islets, and reefs, among which are the islands of Vidi Levu, Venu, Levu, and Kodabun. Tasman discovered this group in 1643, the very year in which Terricelli invented the barometer and Louis XIV ascended the throne. I leave it to the reader to decide which of these three men benefited humanity most. Then came Cook in 1714, de Entrecosteux in 1793, and lastly Dumont d'Erville 
1827 who disentangled the geographical chaos of this archipelago. The Nautilus sailed close to the Bay of Waylay, the scene of the terrible adventure of Captain Dillon, who was the first to throw light on the mystery of the wreck in which La Perouse had met his end. We dragged our nets across the space several times and collected a large quantity of excellent oysters. We opened them at the table, following the advice of Seneca, and gorged ourselves. These mollusks belong to a species known by the name of Austria lamellesa, which is very common in Corsica. The oyster bed of Walea must have been immense, and if it had not been kept under control by various means, the accumulation of these shellfish would have filled the bays, since each oyster can produce as many as two million eggs. If Master Land had no reason to repent of his gluttony on this occasion, it was because the oyster is the only food that never causes indigestion. Indeed, a man must eat no less than 16 dozen of these acephalous mollusks to provide himself with 315 grams of the nitrogen necessary for his daily diet. On the 25th of December, the Nautilus sailed into the midst of the archipelago of the New Hebrides, discovered by Quiros in 1606, explored by Bourgainville in 1768, and given their present name by Cook in 1773. This group consists mainly of nine large islands that form a strip measuring 120 leagues from north-northwest to south-southeast, to between latitudes 15 degrees and 2 degrees south, longitudes 164 degrees and 168 degrees. We passed near the island of Aru, which, when we saw it at midday, looked like a mass of green woods dominated by a very high peak. That day, Ned Land seemed to resent the lack of Christmas decorations, a family occasion that Protestants observe with great fervor. I had not seen Captain Nemo for a week when, on the morning of the 27th, he came into the big saloon looking, as usual, like someone who had been absent five minutes. I was busy following the route of the Nautilus on the planisphere when the captain came up and put his finger on a point on the map and uttered just one word, Vanacoro. This was the name of the island where the ships of La Perouse had sunk. I jumped to my feet immediately. Are we going to Vanacoro? I asked. Yes, Monsieur le Professeur, replied the captain. And shall we visit those famous islands on which the Basule and the Astrolabe were wrecked? If you wish, Professor. When will we be in Vanacoro? We are there now, Professor. Followed by Captain Nemo, I went up to the platform, and from there I scanned the horizon with great interest. To the northeast, two volcanic islands of different size emerged, surrounded by a coral reef whose perimeter measured 40 miles. This was the island of Vanacoro, which Dumont Deville named the Isle de la Roches. We were facing the little haven of Venu, situated at latitude 16 degrees 40 minutes south, by longitude 164 degrees 32 minutes east. The land seemed to be covered with greenery from the shore right up to the peaks inland, dominated by Mount Capogo, 2,856 feet high. After penetrating the outer ring of rocks through the narrow strait, the Nautilus found itself inside the reef in 30 to 40 fathoms of water. In the green shade of the mangroves, I saw savages, a dozen or so, who showed great surprise at our approach. Did they think, perhaps, that the long black body coming toward them on the surface of the water with some kind of formidable cetacean against which they should be on their guard? Just then, Captain Nemo asked me what I knew about the shipwreck of La Perouse. Only what everybody else knows, Captain, I replied. Would you mind telling me what everybody else knows? He said in a somewhat ironical tone. No trouble at all. I told him that the last works of Dumont de Ville had, had made known. Here is a brief summary of them. La Perouse and his second-in-command, Captain de Lengo, were sent by Louis the Sixteenth in 1785 to sail around the world. They set forth in the corvettes La Boussole, 
in La Astrolabe, which was never seen again. In 1791, the French government, understandably worried about the fate of the two corvettes, manned and equipped two big supply ships, the Recherche and Esperance, which set sail from Brest on the 28th of September under the orders of Bruni de Entrecosteux. Two months later, it was learned through the report of a certain Captain Bowen of the Albemarle that the wreckage of ships had been seen on the coast of New Georgia. De Entrecasteaux, however, paid no attention to this report, which, be it said, seemed somewhat dubious and made for the Admiralty Islands mentioned in the report of Captain Hunter as the place where La Perouse's ship had been wrecked. But his search was in vain. The Esperance and the Recherche sailed past Vanacora without stopping, and in short, this voyage was disastrous because De Entrecasteaux, Two of his lieutenants and several members of the crew lost their lives. The first person to find indisputable traces of the wrecks was an experienced old sailor of the Pacific, Captain Dillon. On the 15th of May, 1824, his ship, the St. Patrick, was off the island of Tikopia, one of the New Hebrides group, when a Lascar came alongside in a canoe and sold him a silver sword handle with engraved character on the hilt. The Lascar maintained, moreover, that six years earlier, during a visit to Vanacoro, he had seen two Europeans belonging to the ships that had been wrecked many years before on the reefs of the island. Dylan guessed that they must be the ships of La Parousse, whose disappearance had caused a stir throughout the world. So he decided to go to Vanacoro, where, according to the Lascar, there was a lot of wreckage to be seen. However, adverse winds and currents prevented him from doing so. Dillon, therefore, returned to Calcutta, where he succeeded in arousing the interest of the Asiatic Society and the East India Company. A ship, which was given the name of Recherche, was placed at his disposal, and he set sail on the 23rd of January, 1827, accompanied by a French deputy. The Recherche, after calling at several points in the Pacific, dropped anchor off Venacoro on the 7th of July, 1827, in the very harbor of Venu, where the Nautilus was anchored at this moment. There, Dillon collected numerous remains of the wreck, iron utensils, anchors, parts of pulley blocks, swivel guns, an 18-pound cannonball, pieces of navigation instruments, a section of taffrel, and a bronze bell bearing the inscription, Bazin ma fête, Bazin made me. The foundry mark of the arsenal of Brest was about the year 1785. There was no longer any possible doubts. Dillon, completing his investigation, remained at the sinister location until October. Then he left Vanacoro, sailed toward New Zealand, putting into Calcutta on the 7th of April, 1828, and returned to France, where he was given a warm welcome by King Charles X. At the same time, Dumont d'Urville, knowing nothing of Dillon's search, had already gone elsewhere to look up the, for the wreck. A whaler was, had reported that medals and a cross of St. Louis had been seen in the possession of savages in Louisade and New Caledonia. D'Urville, commanding the astrolabe, had therefore set sail and reached the port of Hobart Town two months after Dillon had left Vanacoro. There he learned the results achieved by Dillon, and was told, in addition, that a certain James Hobbs, second-in-command of the Union of Calcutta, having landed on an island situated at latitude 8 degrees 18 minutes south and longitude 156 degrees 30 minutes east, had noticed that the natives of these regions were using iron bars and red cloth. Dumont d'Herville was perplexed. He was undecided whether he should believe these reports published by newspapers of questionable integrity. Nevertheless, he decided to follow Dillon's trail. On the 10th of February, 1828, the Astrolabe called at Tikopia, where she took on, as a guide and interpreter, a deserter who had been living on that island and made for Vanacoro. She sighted the latter island on the 12th of February, sailed along its reefs until the 14th, and on the 20th, finally anchored within the barriers. 
in the harbor of Venu. Several officers made a tour of the island on the 23rd and brought back some unimportant trifles. The natives, resorting to evasions and other subterfuges, refused to lead them to the scene of the wreck. This shifty behavior made the Frenchmen think that they had ill-treated the shipwrecked sailors, and indeed the natives did seem to fear that Dumont d'Urville had come to avenge La Parousse and his unfortunate companions. On the 26th, however, realizing that there were to be no reprisals and persuaded by gifts, they conducted Jacquinot, the second-in-command, to the wreck. There, in two or three fathoms of water between the reefs of Pacu and Venu, lay angers, guns, and pigs of lead and iron, all caked with limey secretions. The sloop and the whaler of the astrolabe were sent to the spot, and after much effort these crews succeeded in hauling up an 1,800-pound anchor, a cast-iron cannonball, a lead pig, and two copper swivel guns. Questioning the natives, Dumont d'Urville learned also that La Parousse, after having lost his two ships on the reefs of the island, had built a smaller ship, only to go down a second time. Where? No one knew. The captain of the astrolabe had had a memorial built in honor of the famous navigator and his crew. This was a simple quadrangular pyramid set on a coral base with no metal fittings that might have tempted the covetousness of the natives. Dumont d'Urville was ready to leave, but the health of his crew had been seriously undermined by fever caused by the unhealthful climate and very ill himself. He could not set sail until the 17th of March. In the meantime, the French government, fearing that Dumont d'Urville had not been informed of Dillon's researches, had sent the corvette La Bayonnaise to Benacoro. The corvette had been stationed on the west coast of America and was commanded by Legoron de Tromelon. The Bayonnaise reached Venacoro a few months after the astrolabe had left, obtained no new information, but noted that the savages had respected the memorial put up to La Perouse. Such was the gist of the story I told Captain Nemo. So, he said to me, no one knows what happened to the third ship built by those shipwrecked sailors on the island of Venacoro? No, no one knows. Captain Nemo did not say anything but motioned to me to follow him into the big saloon. The Nautilus submerged a few yards below the waves and the panels opened. I rushed to the window, and there, under a thick coat of corals covered with fungi, siphonules, alonarians, mandrapores, through myriads of very attractive fish, gerals, glyphosodins, pomphiridae, diacompae, holocentry, I recognized debris that Durville had not been able to dredge up. Iron stirrups, anchors, cannon, gunshot, capstan, fittings, the stem of a boat, all objects clearly showing the wreck of some vessel, now carpeted with living flowers. As I surveyed this scene of desolation, Captain Nemo said to me in a serious voice, Captain La Perouse set sail on the 7th of December, 1785, with his ships La Basseau, La Astrolabe. First, he dropped anchor in Botany Bay, visited the Friendly Isles in New Caledonia, then made for Santa Cruz and put into Nomoka, one of the islands of the Hape group. Then his ship struck the unknown reefs of Vanacoro. The Basile, which was leading, ran aground on the south coast. The Astrolabe came to her aid and suffered the same fate. The first ship went down almost immediately. The second, stranded to leeward, lasted a few days. The natives gave the shipwrecked sailors a friendly reception. They settled on the island and built a smaller vessel with the debris of the two larger ships. Some of the sailors actually decided of their own free will to stay in Vanacoro. The rest, weak and ill, left with La Perouse. They sailed in the direction of the Solomon Islands, and they perished to a man on the west coast of the principal island of that group, between Cape Deception and Cape Satisfaction. But how do you know all of this? I exclaimed. Here is something I found on the very scene of the last wreck. 
Captain Nemo showed me a tin box, stamped with the French coat of arms and corroded by the salt water. He opened it, and I saw a sheaf of papers, yellowed and discolored, but still legible. They were the orders issued by the Minister of Navy himself to Captain La Perouse, with notation in the margin in the hand of Louis the Sixteenth himself. A fine death for a sailor, said Captain Nemo. A coral tomb is a peaceful tomb, and may heaven bless me and my companions with no other. Questions to consider after reading. What do you think Professor Aronnax's assumption that the days in the Bible were epochs, not literal days? Do you enjoy oysters? Would you eat them the way Ned Land did, gorging yourself on them? What is the significance of Vanacoro? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.